Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Good afternoon again. Um, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the planting pastor here of, of Advent Houston, um, and it's it's a joy uh, to have uh, you here and uh, to welcome you uh, back. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the mission, vision, and values uh, of, of Advent. And so um, we've spent time kind of talking through and uh, thinking through uh, our, our mission statement, which is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ. So we talk a little bit uh, each time about what those words mean. And uh, currently we're on our fourth of five values. Uh, the first value is to embrace both truth and mystery. The second is to embody Jesus in kingdom ministry. The third is to celebrate the good of God's creation. And this week we're going to be talking about what does it look like to make and form disciples in everyday spaces of life? Um, if you go on the website, you can read more about these. And there's bullet points under each uh, value that we've, that we've listed. And under the fourth value are these particular bullet points. I forgot to get PowerPoint. We did it last week. It was awesome. Everybody loved it. Uh, and I forgot to do it this week. But um, they are this. By remembering that Jesus, that, that in Jesus' first advent, he did not remain in heaven to teach from afar, but he came into our world to dwell among us. Second, by patterning our ministry after Jesus, who demonstrates that the first step is to show up and to be present with others. Third, by actively caring about and pursuing deep personal relationships with those who God brings into our lives. And fourth, by creating spaces of hospitality and belonging in our Sunday gatherings, in our homes, and in the places where we work, where we study, and where we play. We believe that by doing these things and valuing these things, that's what it will look like for us to make and form disciples. There's a, a, a theologian recently by the name of Mike Breen who wrote this. He says, um, if you aim for the church, or if you aim for disciples, you always get the church. If you aim for the church, you rarely get disciples. His point is this, not to say uh, his definition of the church is perhaps a little different than what I would say, but his point is this, if you're trying to grow an institution, you oftentimes struggle with figuring out why that institution exists in the first place, right? We don't say, I want to form a team. Now we're going to figure out what sport we're all going to play a little bit later. No, you say, I want to play this sport. Let's get a team together, right? That's his point. And so as Advent, as a church that has gathered together, we want to talk more about what it means to make and to form disciples of Jesus Christ, that we can be on this mission, so to speak, together. And so this evening, uh, much has been uh, uh, kind of as we've continued through the values, we're, we're looking at a particular scriptural passage that keys in on an element or two. And I think more than any other week, this one like scratches the surface. Uh, I, I would want to spend way more time on other elements of this. But 
we're going to talk uh, about this value from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So uh, feel free to read along in your bulletin uh, or on your phones or in your Bible with us. This is Paul speaking. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you that, um, that you tell us that, uh, that you desire for every knee to bow to Jesus and that through him and by him, Lord, we can come to know you. And so I pray, Father, as we, as we consider your word together this evening, I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hands and feet to do your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What, what grows the church? Um, how do we really, how do people come to know Jesus and maybe uh, grow in their faith or grow in their discipleship? Well, for most of American history, um, because of God's good and gracious work of the first and second great awakenings, the, the tale of revival began to wag the dog of revivalism in America. Um, from, from a biblical perspective, right, the ministry prayers and kind of careful work of God's ministers at that time didn't do anything abnormal to create the revival that would happen in the first and second great awakening. It was just God's gracious work of the Holy Spirit in those moments. But because the Spirit moved in such amazing ways and gracious ways during that time, it was tempting to believe that the growth of the church, right, this idea that, that the knees were bowing to Jesus as Lord, that all of that was happening because the right environment was created. It was easy to look for kind of charismatic preachers or emotionally stirring worship music or think like maybe they advertise better than we've ever advertised in the church before. Right? All of these things on a, from a human level were what people began to think maybe that's what it looks like to grow the church. Well, so American Christians began to draw the conclusions that, that big churches and big events and big productions or celebrity pastors are the best and maybe even like the only way in sometimes in some places for people to hear the good news and become Christians. It worked for Jonathan Edwards. It worked uh, for George Whitfield. So it can work again, right? 
if we can just figure out what will attract the most people to come to us, especially the most non-Christians, then we can evangelize to all of those people and they'll come to know Jesus. And then we can go home and be, at, be home by six o'clock and watch the Astros and nothing else is, is required of us, right? Um, one big event, uh, maybe a few, and then we're done. Um, or maybe we just keep trying to recreate that same type of thing over and over and over again. We can see this in all sorts of Christian activities. Right? If we can just get like a Christian celebrity to come and to speak to our kids, then they will become disciples of Jesus Christ. We just have to outcool the kids and recognize that Jesus is cooler than they are, right? Or if we can take a, a group of kids to a retreat or, or, or adults to a retreat or a camp setting um, and get them out of their regular everyday environment, then maybe they'll have ears to hear the good news for the first time. We just need to get them uh, where, where there's no distractions. And not only that, but if we can just get people to listen to the best possible preaching, right, with, with hilarious uh, pastors kind of modeling their preaching after comedians even, then we'll come to know Jesus. We just need to dazzle them more, and then they'll want to come and to show up. Right, but what is... What does, the, what does the Bible have to teach us about making and forming disciples? What does the Bible say about where people grow and become more like Christ? And so this evening, as we consider this Philippians passage, I want to talk about um, two things. And it's kind of an inverse order. Normally, we would talk about the motivation for, for our mission um, first, but we're going to actually talk about that second. I want to talk first about our pattern of ministry the pattern that it follows Jesus's pattern here. So first pattern and then motivation. So within pattern, we're also going to break this one down. We're going to break this down into two things too. Incarnation and humility. First, let's talk about incarnation. Um, given our predilection for like flashy and exciting things, talking about making and forming disciples in everyday spaces of life, which is what the value actually says, it sounds pretty foolish and aspirational um, at, at best. How on earth can we reach anyone in places as mundane and as boring as where we spend our everyday? Right, in my home, at work, at the playground, at HEB, at my kid's soccer practice, in the hospital, in the doctor's waiting room. No matter what it is, it feels mundane. It feels boring. Isn't the culture too far gone? Right, they're already ignoring Christians anyway. Don't we need to do something big and splashy for non-Christians to notice? Isn't it foolish to believe that simple things like hospitality and conversations about somebody else's faith and life, that those things will begin to mold and shape us into the likeness of Christ. And I have to admit that, that the big flashy event um, as sort of the main form of ministry is really tempting. Right? And the chief reason that it's so tempting is that it requires so little of me. Right? I don't have to love anyone else for, for more than maybe a couple hours a day or a couple hours a week or maybe even a couple hours a year. Right? I can live my life the way that I want to and in half obedience to Jesus, I can share the good news in an hour or two and then I can take back and head back out to live my life the way that I wanted to. I can check that box of evangelism and continue to live as I've always lived before. 
But Paul is telling us to change our minds and therefore to change our lives. Our mind is supposed to follow the mind of Christ and not just to follow it, but to have the exact same mind of him. To do what he does for the reasons that he does it. And ultimately, our life will look like his, where we will incarnate, where we will take on flesh, so to speak. Which means, at least in our context, that we would go into the places where we're ministering. That's our pattern of ministry. And at Advent, we've talked about this idea a lot. Um, right? That, that God doesn't stand back and preach at us. He doesn't lob truth bombs at us from afar. No, he shows up in a small town to a relatively impoverished family. Right? He's born to an unwed, yes, unwed, engaged, but unwed nonetheless, teenage mother. He lives a largely unremarkable life up until his public ministry. Even in his miracles, right, they, they, they're, they're pretty mundane at times. He's, he's relational in his, in his miracles. He's relational in his preaching. Jesus makes and forms disciples in the everyday spaces of life. As we read in the gospel passage earlier, Jesus walks around. And as he walks around, he ministers to people who are there in front of him. In Galilee, in Samaria. And as he's traveling, he doesn't hold massive conferences, bringing in well-known rabbis to inspire the disciples. How do his disciples learn what it looks like to be his disciples? They spend time with him. They travel with him for years. They eat together. They talk together. They argue together. They rebuke one another. They ask for forgiveness from one another. They care for one another. These are the means by which one makes disciples. These are the means by which one forms as a disciple. So the chief way at Advent that we want to think about making and forming disciples is we want to think about it in the everyday spaces where our people and our church exist. Right? Gathered here together on Sunday is just one of those spaces. Right? But, but, you know, as, as ordinary as this is, as, as strange as it is to listen to a balding man in a clerical collar, there are so much more to what it looks like to be formed in the likeness of Christ. In the places where you work, where you play, where you sleep. It sounds simple, but it's, it's actually massively challenging. All of our life is meant to be lived by faith. And all of all of that is meant to be for his glory. And that means that you can't just show up on Sundays and kind of check that box. Um, you can't just listen to sermons online or come here on Sundays and listen. God demands more of you. He demands more of me. He demands that we love others actively. He demands that you, you do so in the place where you work, the place where you go to school, the, place, the places where you play in your neighborhood. He commands us to tell others about Jesus and to live out that faith. And the only way to do it is in the midst of everyday life. And so let me make one quick note as before I go on. I, I in no way want to say that like the large event is wrong. I'm not trying to say that at all. What I am trying to say is that that's not the primary means by which we come to know and are formed in Jesus' name and in his ways. 
Some of us, yes, we've maybe come to know Jesus through a retreat or through those sorts of things. But oftentimes, if we're actually honest with ourselves, we've been maybe formed more by a really challenging conversation that we've had with a friend over years and years and years, right? And not only that, no, I'm also not trying to say that, that by virtue of like loving and doing this in the ordinary means of life, that some of us might um, not be... There are too many negatives there. Some of us might be called to be missionaries in a foreign place. I, I want to acknowledge that. But not everybody. And for those of us that might be called to go far, we begin by loving where we are right now. We don't look beyond where we are right now unto a place far away. So my point is this. He begins by telling us, all of us, to love our neighbors and our enemies and who are our neighbors and our enemies? Almost always, they're the ones that we are the closest to. They're the ones that are the most right, that are, that are right next to us. At Advent, that's where we want to begin. And that's what we want to emphasize. Loving those around you means giving them access to your life. It means making room in your schedule to be interrupted. And it means making room in your schedule for other people. Right? Not, not just for your friends, but for your neighbors and co-workers to interrupt you as well. And that can be really challenging. I know in this room, there are a, a lot of very busy schedules. We're busy people with lots of opportunities. But this isn't meant to overwhelm you. I'm not telling you all to, to begin by, by having everybody in your neighborhood over for dinner. Right? Uh, what I am trying to say is take whatever that next step might be. One person. One person that you live, work, or play with that you can love tangibly. Another person maybe that needs you to show up to something. Practice that ministry of presence. Show up and incarnate the good news of Jesus Christ for them. Because we don't have to be present to everyone. And we don't have to give access to everyone. But we do have to do it for at least some. Right? For the people that we actually love. That our neighbors or, or our enemies that we're commanded to love. So our model is meant to follow the incarnation, but it's also meant to follow Christ's humility. So Paul is writing to a church in Philippi that's distraught, that's fighting, that's struggling with the fact that he, Paul, is in prison. Um, and they have reason to be afraid because right, they, they're in the Roman Empire. They've been marginalized kind of in every sense of the word. And yet Paul says here, somehow at the end of our passage, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But how will that glorious future happen? How when the, when the man making that very claim is the one in prison at this moment? Right? How when, when even the church can't rise above blame shifting and, and prejudice and infighting? Where even right now, in our day, in our time, where the church can't unite um, in our divided state. Where um, will it occur through big events? Will it occur through celebrities uh, coming to know the Lord? Or through Christians taking back the government? Or through Christian conferences? Or, or the right type of Christian schooling? Right? What's the first step? What's the best step? Well, Paul says that, that first, the Philippians, and therefore we are to humble ourselves. Paul pleads with them to maintain a sense of unity and brotherhood. They're to have the same love and the same joy 
And that comes from having the same mind, the mind of Christ. The mind that does not seek to diminish the self, but um, that, that, that seeks to love others more than loves the self. Right? Paul doesn't say to never look out for yourself. Right? Like always give up of yourself until there's nothing left. Like keep going until you have zero left in the tank. Become nothing so that those around you can take and take and take. That's not at all what he says here. He says in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I bring this up because this is important that those of you who've maybe been in the Reformed tradition for a while, we rightly recognize the gravity of sin and the graveness of it. But oftentimes, kind of um, righteousness within our own circles can look like feeling the worst about our sin publicly, right? where, we, where we self-flagellate spiritually in an attempt to kind of earn God's favor or demonstrate that we are, 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 the, are religious and maybe worthy. Right? I'm worthless. I'm dust. And that isn't the type of humility that the scriptures are describing here. Humiliation and humility are not synonyms. Humility isn't thinking less and less of yourself, right? Because that is actually still self-focused. That is actually still selfish thinking. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Thinking about other people more. Or as Paul says here, it's to count others more significant than yourself, to think about them more, right? As Christians, we're to humble ourselves because we're followers of Jesus and we do what Jesus does. We have the mind and the model of Jesus. So we humble ourselves as he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. So ministry and discipleship that we're called to do, right, this making and forming of disciples is done as we humble ourselves, as we put on the mind of Christ and humble ourselves. But we don't do this by, by like pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and saying, all right, I'm going to stop looking at myself. I'm going to now pay attention to others and I'm going to self-sacrifice on behalf of others. No, it actually begins by changing our focus from self to focusing on Jesus Having that kind of other-focused ministry cannot begin with thinking, all right, what, what do other people need that I can offer them? No, this kind of other-focused ministry must begin with looking at Jesus. It comes from realizing what he's done for you and me. From realizing that we're now a part of his family, if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, that he emptied himself so that we might inherit all that he has Right? That we might inherit the earth. That we might inherit what is His. And so we come to know that full love. And that is, is what fills us to minister. We learn from Him. We apprentice ourselves to Him. And we immerse our lives in His lives. And that leads us to, to our, my second point, which is, is the motivation the motivation for, for ministry in this way. Um, this point comes less from our actual passage and more just from my own experience in ministry uh, for long periods of time. Whenever the church talks about kind of a missional impulse, 
right, that we need to go out and make disciples and form disciples, we can operate in one of two ways. There's either this legalistic impulse of, yes, we need to go out and do this, or we can kind of write it off. Say like, all right, I've seen this done poorly in the past. I kind of understand what he's talking about. I don't, this isn't really for me. I'm not going to do it. Okay, what is and should be our motivation? We hear this more often than not as an imperative, right? You will go out, you will make disciples, you will form disciples, right? And we treat that kind of like a, um, a highly spiritual New Year's resolution, um, where, where that type of ob obligation can, be, can motivate us, um, can motivate us for a little while. But if you're at all like me um, with New Year's resolutions, it's maybe a month, right, uh, before, before it's dead. And then there's a feedback mechanism that's negative, right? Oh, I feel terrible. I broke it. And that, that feeling of terribleness actually leads me to even less than I was doing before and less and less and less, right? And so when we think of it in light of this particular command to go and to make disciples, we can think, oh, I haven't done it the way that God has commanded me to do it. I, I'm terrible. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. Right? In our legalism, in our hyper-adherence to this command, we are building a house of cards. Right? There's no genuine stability to it. It lacks any stable foundation. And any challenge that comes into our lives knocks the whole thing over. When life gets challenging, it's gone. Our whole understanding of ourself, our whole understanding of the church, our whole understanding of ministry, gone. But God is not first and foremost a commander giving out these types of obligations and these types of commands saying, you better do this or else. He is a missionary God. He is determined to befriend his enemies He's taken his enemies and he's made us into his children by pursuing us, by coming into our lives and by changing us. And even more than that, he has become one of us. St. Athanasius, a fourth century bishop in Alexandria in the north of Africa, um, talks about uh, the incarnation, talks about Jesus coming down to earth because, because that's where our eyes and that's where our focus are, our interests He's putting himself right where our gaze is. He interrupts our busy lives and he puts himself into our line of sight. Um, I can't remember which, which child it was, but, but one of my children used to, whenever my wife and I were in discussions, um, just trying to be adults, talk about adult things, they'd come up, sit in our lap. We'd usually keep talking anyway. All right, you know, mommy, daddy, okay, we're still talking, still focused. Finally, one of the, they would grab our face and turn it toward them, okay? Pay attention to me, okay? It's like that. It's like the child that wants to come and to say, pay attention to me. And in no way is Jesus begging for our attention. All right? his, his incarnation, though, is his grace to us because we're so distracted and so self-focused that we miss the very presence of God, and yet he is gracious, he comes into our everyday spaces and he spends most of his earthly life just doing everyday things. He comes for those of us who would rather do life without him. Those of us who'd rather keep, keep him kind of at, at, at arm's length. We want him to maybe just stay out of our, of our business. This is mine, Jesus. Don't touch it. But he pursues and he pursues and he pursues.
right? When we think we have all of our, our, our desires fulfilled and all of the duties that we need done as Christians um, outside of him, he pursues. When our whole house of cards is destroyed because something challenging has happened in our lives, he pursues. When we fail to love our enemies and our neighbors as we're called to do, he yet again pursues. And through Christ Jesus, you are changed from an enemy to a friend, to a family member. From his, his enemies that have no access to a family member that has given everything that's in the house. Right, this is our motivation for mission. This is our motivation to make and to form disciples. We do so because we're sons and daughters of God Almighty. We are sons and daughters of God if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's that changed relationship that causes us to live out of obedience. Because as one theologian says, what God has done to you, he also desires to accomplish through you. The point is this. For those people that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, he desires for us to go out and help others taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me conclude with this. Um, I know some of y'all saw it because I got a lot of text messages. But about a week ago, uh, I, was, um, uh, I got uh, tickets to go see an Astros game right behind home plate. It was awesome. Uh, you, you probably saw my shiny head. Um, it, it, these were family friends or friends of my parents that they were just looking for anybody who could last minute go and take these seats. And so they figured, well, a pastor can always last minute go because he only works on one day anyway. Um, <laughs> Right, uh, not not true. However, I did have a very flexible schedule, and I made sure to work it all around to be there. Um, so I was given four tickets, right behind home plate. Now, for the sake of this illustration, let's assume that first you love the Astros, which is a good assumption. Love the Astros. Uh, second, that you were gifted not just one seat, but you were gifted all of the seats to the game. Right, that's good news. Right. What would you do? Well, you'd look around and you'd see who you're close to that you could invite because you're going to be spending this game with them. But there's way more seats to fill. So you'd go from there and you'd say, hey, why don't my friends need to invite their friends? And their friends need to invite their friends. And we're going to have an amazing Astros party and it's going to be awesome. Right? That's what our ministry and our mission is like. Now, I know this breaks down, so don't, don't over-focus on it it's, uh, to, to the nth degree. But, but my point is this. We have been given grace upon grace upon grace. And Jesus has invited us to participate in sharing that grace with others. We naturally want to invite others to participate in it. Like Jesus did, we're to take the form of a servant. To interact with people who are right next to us. And in light of all that he has given to us to offer that grace to them. We're to offer them amazing seats. Right? So that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. And show others just how good he actually is. Not because we've been commanded to do it or because we're obligated. But because we've been given these awesome seats and we know just how amazing it actually is. Next week we're going to talk a little bit more about how we want to be a church that celebrates, kind of that parties, so to speak, because Jesus has invited us to the greatest party of all time, right? 
and we get the privilege of inviting others to participate in it. Would you pray with me unto that end? Our God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you brought, uh, that he came into our very eyesight. And that by your Holy Spirit, you have lifted our eyes to see you and what you have done for us in him. Father, may we live by faith. May we love by faith. Because you have first loved us. And so, Father, I pray for all of us who are here. Um, help us to find that one person. Um, that, that one person that needs uh, to taste and see that you are good. Maybe it's someone even in here. May we love and care for all of those that you have placed into our midst. Because you love and care for each of us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.